And in your outline that you have in front of you there, you know where I'm going. You know what I'm going to be teaching on. Not only do you have a big chart there on the front page of your outline, but the title is The Teaching on the End Times. We are looking at the beginning of the tribulation this evening. Next week, we're going to look at the middle of the tribulation. And then in two weeks, we're going to look at the end of the tribulation. So that's kind of where we're headed for the next few weeks together. And then after that, we will look at the call of our Savior to watch and to be on the alert for the coming of our Lord. But Mark chapter 13, verses 1 to 13 is is uh, what we want to look at this evening. I want to read it, and then what I want to do is I want to read Revelation chapter 6 as well. I believe both of these sections, Mark 13 and Revelation 6, if hear this, that they are parallel, talking about the same event. So I'm going to read both of them, and Revelation gives a bit more detail, so I want to read both of those, even though I'm not going to expound a lot on Revelation. I'm going to allude to that as we go through. Okay, Mark 13, follow with me in verse 1. As he, Jesus, was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see those great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Well, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must be uh, be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. I want to read Revelation chapter 6 as well. You have a chart on page 2, just a little... FYI, on the bottom of page 2 there, that shows the parallels between what we just read in Mark 13, and then Matthew 24 is also a parallel there, to Revelation chapter 6. Same order of events, describing the same future prophetic situation. Revelation 6. 
Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a loud, as with the voice of thunder, Come! I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come! And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come! I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come! I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Father, we come now to a portion of your word where we pray and we humbly ask, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us into the truth. We want to know your word. We want to know the truth. We want to know clearly what our Savior said regarding the end times. We want to be alert. We want to be vigilant. We want to be watchful. And we want to rightly interpret your word. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was a newly converted young man at the university where I was attending. And when the Lord saved me, God gave me, by His mercy, an insatiable appetite to study end times. I loved studying end times theology. It's like I couldn't get enough. I studied, I read, I thought, I pondered, I considered, I compared 
articles with articles and scripture with scripture. And I remember so many nights, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, one in the morning, two in the morning, where my computer on my little, my little desk that I had, my roommate would be sleeping and I would have all these tabs on my web browser, just reading article after article after article. I couldn't get enough. We come tonight to what I think is one of the most fascinating studies in all of systematic theology, and that's the doctrine of end times. Theologians call it eschatology because it's the study of the end, the study of the last things. Mark chapter 13 is what we have before us, but there's a parallel in Matthew 24 and 25 in a much more lengthy discourse. Luke 21 also adds a little bit more information. But hear this. In Mark 13, this is the longest recorded answer that Jesus gives to any question that he received in his ministry. Mark is writing, and when Jesus receives a question, here is the longest answer that he gives, at least that we have recorded for us, in biblical revelation in the Gospels. In Mark 13, it is an end times discourse of comfort, of instruction, of warning, before Christ would die on the cross and then rise from the dead and Ascend to the Father. Now, I want to state a couple things clearly from the outset. I don't believe the rapture is in this section. I believe in the catching up of the saints. I hold to that doctrine, but it's not found in this portion. It's not found in this sermon. And the reason we know that is because the church wasn't around when Jesus gave this sermon. The church didn't begin until Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. So, this is Jesus speaking of the plan of God for the people of Israel, because it's a very Jewish question, what are we going to How are we going to know the signs of the end of the age? Tell us, Messiah Jesus... What are going to, what are the signs that are going to lead to the end of the age? And if you say, well, well then why does that, how does it apply to me? You hold that interpretation. So uh, the rapture is not here. The church isn't here. This isn't about the church age. Well, why should I read and study this? Does it really apply to us? And I want to, I want to give you these four thoughts by way of introduction. Yes, I believe it does apply. Number one, to teach you. I believe it applies to teach you. You have these little stars in your outline there because God wants you and he wants me to know what will happen. He want, He wants us to understand when society continues to increase in its hostility and godlessness, we need to be taught about what God's plan is for the future. Second, this applies to us so that we would be encouraged because I'm going to bring out tonight two key words that show the absolute sovereignty of God. Putin's not in charge. Biden's not in charge. North Korea, China, they're not in charge. Jesus Christ is sovereign. And so we can triumph in Christ's victory. Third, it applies to us because it ought to embolden you with urgency and soul winning. One of the reasons I 
by God's grace, I want to excel still more, but I, I, I want to be a soul winner is because I believe Jesus could come back at any time. Fourth, I think another reason why this applies to us is to wake you up to holy living. To beware of deceivers, that we would stand strong, that we would look up, for our redemption is drawing near. Before we look into the text, I give you a couple of sort of key phrases there. Note the purpose. Before Jesus returns, our text teaches us that the world will be increasingly hostile toward God's people. We think it's bad now. Is nothing like what it will be like in the tribulation. But also, we need to be prepared for Christ's coming. We need to be prepared by application for the soon coming of the Lord. But second, look in your outline at the interpretation as well. This is not apocalyptic genre. Some people say that, you know, the book of Revelation and Daniel and Mark 13 is apocalyptic as sort of a, a key to allegorical interpretation. This is an apocalyptic genre. This is prophetic genre, which means we must come at the meaning with a normal literal plane Interpretation, just a straightforward interpretation of the text. One thing that I find so compelling in Luke chapter 21, Jesus gives the details of how the temple will be destroyed in 70 AD. And that literally happened just like Jesus said down to the detail. Well, let's be consistent. If that happened, then the end times drama as well should literally happen just like our Savior said as well. But by way of interpretation, again, if I can emphasize, I believe the chapter is not about you and it's not about me living in the church age. I believe this chapter is predominantly about Israel. It is about God's people and his plan to prepare Israel for her kingdom. And that happens in the tribulation period. See in the chart there on page one, you see on the left side of that chart, it talks about the church age. That's where you and I are right now living. We are in the church. Ephesians talks about Jew and Gentile brought together in one body. The Spirit of God is living in us. We're a gathering of baptized believers. We're in the church. The church age ends when all believers are caught up in the rapture. At that point, there are no living believers on the earth at that point because we've been caught up to heaven, the rapture. That will then pave the way for the tribulation period. The tribulation period. I'm going to speak more about that in just a little bit. So I don't believe what we're looking at tonight is dealing with the church age. Although there's application for us, the meaning is the future seven-year tribulation period. But I want you to look at the placement, though, in your outline, the placement. I believe that God gives so much teaching on end times to comfort believers. It's so sad that it's such a divisive area of theology amongst Christians. And there can be differences of point of view. We understand that. Good men differ and good people differ. We get that. But it ought to edify God gives end times to comfort. He tells us what's going to happen so that we would be built up in the faith and, and encouraged in his great plan. I mean, he, 
He could have given a discourse on the doctrine of creation. That's important too. But he gives a discourse on the doctrine of end times right before he leaves this world. He wants you to know what's going to happen in the future. He wants you to know and to hope and to study and to believe this. So we cannot be indifferent to this. And I don't think we ought to be ignorant toward it. And I think worse yet, a growing trend among seminary students and pastors is to be agnostic. Nobody can really know. There's so many interpretations. And I don't think the Bible allows for that. We want to be confident by reading in a plain, normal way what the Bible says about the future. Now, it's called the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse because it's a sermon that Jesus gives on the Mount of Olives. It's late Tuesday afternoon. The sun is probably setting. In the Passion Week, he'll be on a cross by Friday morning. Tonight, we're looking at the beginning of the tribulation. Next week, we will look at the midpoint, the, like the three and a half year midpoint of the seven year tribulation. And then we will look at the end of the tribulation. So, verses one and two. How, how does all this come about? Look at the setting. Verses one and two. Jesus is going out of the temple. And you'll remember, we have spent many weeks looking at all of the dialogues that Jesus had with the religious leaders. And they were trying to trap him and trying to catch him and trying to trick him and trying to stump him in some way. And finally, after all that is done, he is leaving the temple after a after an emotionally draining day of teaching and preaching and debating. He leaves the temple. One of the disciples says to him, verse 1, Teacher, you can almost imagine them pointing, What a great temple that is! Do you see the buildings? The rabbis would say, Whoever hasn't seen the temple has never seen a beautiful building. White limestone jutting high up, higher than the Mount of Olives and the surrounding hills. It was a beautiful white limestone building that Herod had constructed and enlarged. It, it was breathtaking and even blinding when the sunlight hit these enormous and beautiful white limestones. What amazing stones and buildings! Jesus pops their balloon in verse 2 when he said, you see all these? Not one stone will be left upon another. I bet all of their mouths dropped. And I don't want to get lost in this, but it's hard for you and for me to understand the weight of this. For Jewish people at that time, everything in life revolved around the temple. Your worship, your sacrifices, your ceremonies. Your family met in the temple. Your gathering with the saints met in the temple. Even financially and commerce and economics, the, the leaders of Israel, they met in the temple. There were political officials and decisions that took place in the temple courts and in the area. I mean, this was like the center of life. And you're saying everything is going to crumble economically, financially, religiously, commercially. It, it's going to crumble. Draws hit the ground. Verse 3, they're walking. 
They finally come to the Mount of Olives in verse 3, but that was a long walk from verse 2 to verse 3. Out of the temple, down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives to the top. I bet they were silent thinking, what? Our temple is going to be destroyed? How? Who? When? Who's going to do that? Verse 3, they come to the top of the Mount of Olives opposite the temple and Peter, James, John, and Andrew, four of the disciples, they pick up on what Jesus said and they've got two questions here, but actually three total. Matthew gives us the third. When is Jerusalem's destruction going to happen? That's the first question. Only Luke gives the answer to that. Only Luke, Luke 21. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies and and it will be destroyed, 70 AD, that literally happened by Titus and the Romans. Two more questions. What will be the sign of your return? Messiah, you say you're going to die, you're going to come back. What's the sign? Give us the clue as to when you're going to return. And then the third question that Matthew gives, what is the sign of the end of the present age? How do we know when it's getting close? Three questions. Jesus is going to answer each of them. Zechariah chapter 14 is such a wonderful chapter that I bet all the disciples were thinking at this point. Because Zechariah 14 has a really clear end times chronology. Jerusalem will be destroyed. Then Messiah will appear on the Mount of Olives. And then Messiah will establish an earthly kingdom and he will rule over the world. They want to know, when's that going to happen? I get Zechariah 14. Just tell me when. I want to be alert. I want to know the signs. I can be ready. Also, Daniel chapter 9, the 70-week prophecy. 483 years have literally been fulfilled. There's one more, one more unit of seven years that need to be fulfilled. Literally, historically, and prophetically. That's what we call the tribulation. That's what we call the time of Jacob's trouble. That's what we call the day of the Lord, the day of wrath, the hour of testing that comes upon the whole world. You say, well, what starts the tribulation? Like what begins the seven year period? Is it the rapture? That's not accurate. Well, what begins the tribulation? And the answer is the signing of a covenant between the Antichrist and the nation of Israel. That will allow them to rebuild their temple. That will allow them to reinstate sacrifices. And the Antichrist will make a covenant with the nation of Israel for seven years. Daniel chapter 9 Verses 24 to 27 makes that abundantly clear. That is a seven-year period of time that we are talking about here this evening in the tribulation. So, what are the signs of that? We want to be ready. We want to be on the alert. We want to know what's going to happen. These four apostles, these four disciples, I mean, their jaws on the ground. What do you mean our temple is going to be destroyed? Tell us more detail. We want to know.
Jesus in verses 5 through 13. In verses 5 through 13, he is going to describe the signs of the end that lead to his appearing. Now again, if I can be abundantly clear, it is my persuasion that verses 5 to 13 are not describing our time right now in the church age. They are describing only the future tribulation. Now, are there parallels? Are there things that happen now? Well, sure there are. Wars and rumors of wars and all that and famines and persecution, sure. But what he's talking about is specifically the future tribulation because of the parallels with Revelation chapter 6. So, what are the signs? In your outline, look with me. We can walk through these pretty quickly. Number one, the first sign is false Christs. False Christs. Verse 5, see to it. Literally in the Greek, beware, take heed. Be on guard that nobody misleads you. Don't be deceived. Many are going to come in my name saying, I am he and they will mislead many. Now, maybe I could just apply that to our time before I explain a little bit more in detail. But consider the great deception that is going on even right now in our world. I mean, how many have come in the name or the identity or the role of Jesus? I mean, you've got the Catholic Jesus. The Catholic Jesus perpetually dies, but he never atones. You have the Catholic Jesus who is perpetually sacrificed, but he never saves. You have the Muslim Jesus. He never died on a cross and certainly never rose from the dead. You have the Mormon Jesus, who's a brother of Lucifer and not God. You have the prosperity Jesus. He just wants to bless you financially with more money. You have the Jehovah Witness Jesus. He's just a man and not God. You have the Jewish version of Jesus. He's a prophet, a miracle worker, a martyr, a false prophet, a blasphemer. We need discernment today. But Jesus is warning his people regarding the times of the end. Beware. Because in the future, there are going to arise those who will deceive many, namely the Antichrist and namely the false prophet. They are going to come forth. They are going to conquer. They're not going to come with open warfare at the beginning, but he's going to come with the crown and he's called the Antichrist for a reason. Antichrist. Revelation chapter 6 begins by telling us about this great deceiver. Revelation 6 and verses 2 and 3. Christian, here today, God wants us to be aware, but he wants us to be on the alert as well. Yes, this is talking about the future tribulation, but at the same time, we need to be on guard today as well. A second, a second sign of the end that Jesus brings out. Number two in your outline are great conflicts, great conflicts. And this is what we know in verse seven. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened for those things must soon take place. They must soon take place. 
when you hear of wars, and you hear of rumors of wars, don't be frightened. Jesus is not saying to his people, don't be aware. He's saying, don't be anxious. He's saying, he's saying, you need to think about it, but don't be consumed with these things. Why? Verse 7, these things must take place. Do you notice that little word in your Bible, must? It's one of those great little words in the original Greek language that is all about God's sovereignty. God says it must happen this way. There will be wars. There will be rumors of wars. Human history from the past to the present to the future must always happen just like God directs. God is sovereign. He reigns. He's the king. He's Lord over all. This is what Revelation 6 says in verses 3 and 4. In verses 3 and 4, when, when there is a great sword... And people will slay one another and peace will be taken from the earth. There will be not just wars like we hear about now, but global wars. When you hear that, don't be afraid. What an application for us. We hear of things going on. Don't be afraid. Be aware, but don't be anxious. Third. Third. Another sign of the end is widespread disasters, widespread disasters. And we find this in Mark 13. Look at verse eight with me. Nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines, but these are merely the beginning. You know, a lot more detail is what we read in Revelation chapter six talking about the scarcity of food and famine. The Revelation says that the high prices for grain will be ten times higher than they are normally. A loaf of bread, three dollars, would be thirty dollars. A gallon of milk that you get for five dollars might be fifty dollars. Ten times higher. And, and that's, that's understandable because famine is often the direct result of war. And since the wars are great and global, the famines will be great and global. Maybe even in places where famine is not usually experienced as well. But then, do you see it there in verse 8? Jesus talked about earthquakes. Revelation 6 tells us about this earthquake. Did you catch it when we read it earlier? That the stars of the sky fell to the earth like a fig tree. The sky was split apart like a scroll. Every mountain was moved out of its place and every island was moved. That's quite an earthquake. I mean, that's what the text says. Every island and every mountain moved out of its place. Cosmic disturbances the sun the moon the stars even affected and and the response of humanity revelation says humans will hide themselves get this in the mountains that are shaking to hide them from the wrath of god fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand and jesus says back in mark chapter 13 jesus says at the very end of verse 8 these are merely the beginning 
of birth pangs. Birth pangs. I'm going to come back to that phrase, birth pangs. I think it's a key element in the whole sermon because Jewish eschatology talked about their future plan for the Jewish people and God's plan of redemption in the language of birth pangs, difficulties of life before Messiah would arrive and establish his earthly kingdom. It's just the beginning of birth pangs. There's a birth coming. But just like with a human birth, the pangs, the trial, the discomfort can get more intense, more rapid, more frequent, more intense until the birth. These are merely the beginning. Oh, oh, they're real and they're great and they're global and they're huge. It's just the beginning. Fourth, what are the signs of the end? Severe persecution. Severe persecution. Back to Mark 13, verse 9. Again, Jesus said, be on your guard. Be on your guard. They will deliver you to courts and you're going to be flogged and then you're going to stand before governors and you're going to stand before kings as a testimony to them. Verse 12, brother will betray brother to death. A father, the child, children will rise up against the parents. And as if that wasn't enough, verse 13, you're going to be hated by all. Interesting. Jesus talks about religious persecution. They'll be brought before synagogues. He talks about political persecution. You'll be brought before kings. He talks about familial persecution. Father and mother and children will rise up and so on. And then fourth, widespread. Everybody's going to hate you. Everybody's going to hate you. Why all of this? Verse 10. The gospel must first be preached to all nations. Now, I want to preach the gospel to all nations right now, and so do you. But this is talking about the future tribulation. But you're thinking, but wait a minute, Jeff, you said the church will be raptured. So when the tribulation begins, who's going to do the preaching? And the answer, I think, is manifold. First, God will save 144,000 Jewish people. Revelation chapter 7 makes that abundantly clear. They will be evangelists. They will preach throughout the whole world. And God's going to sovereignly protect them for the whole seven-year period. Another group, these guys are cool. I would love to be one of them. The two witnesses. These guys are really awesome. Revelation chapter 11 talks about them. Fire comes out of their mouth and they can, they, they, they can, they can, they can call down curses upon their enemies and they're preachers of the gospel. It just sounds cool. I would love to be one of these guys. I don't know. Third, in Revelation chapter 14, the angel in heaven will be sent to somehow preach the everlasting gospel in the heavenly places for nations to see. Revelation 7, 4 tells us that there will be a myriad of Gentiles from every nation that will come to worship and know and love the Savior. Many of them will die, though. Many of them will be killed for their faith. But these are the people God will use to spread the gospel through all of the nations. But 
I love verse 11. Even though it's talking about believers in the future, there are other places in the Gospels where this is a promise to you and me as well. Verse 11, when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you're going to say. You ever wonder that? You know, boy, if I'm brought before kings, what am I going to say? You know, if, if, they're, if they're hunting me down and persecuting, what am I going to say in that moment when my life is on the line? And the Lord says, don't worry. It will be given you in the moment by the Holy Spirit. You're, you can't do it in your own strength anyway. God will supply what you need. Well, this will be quite amazing because the persecution will be so great that Revelation chapter 6 tells us that one-fourth of the world's population will perish. I did just a one-minute little study on this yesterday, just a little bit of adding the numbers together. I mean, the sheer number of deaths is staggering to consider. Seven billion people now living in the world. That would be like North America, gone. South America, gone. And all of Europe, gone. That would be like one-fourth of the Earth's population. Severe persecution. Widespread death. Widespread death. People will suffer for their faith. Many will die. Many will be loyal to Christ and His Word. Many will come to faith in the first three and a half years. But they will suffer. And Christian, what does the Lord want from us? As, as you and I in the church age are reading this about the future, what does the Lord want? He wants us in verse 13 at the very end, the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. That's the principle for us. Endure. Watch. Keep walking with Christ. And you can't do it in your own strength. Praise God that you can persevere because God perseveres with you. You persevere because God preserves you. So it's not you doing it in your own strength. God is the one who will keep you. But what does the Lord want? He wants you to be aware of what's going to come. And he wants you to be alert right now as we're living looking for the soon coming of the Lord. Because we don't know when he'll return. We don't know when. But we know that he will return. We don't know when. But at the end of verse 8, just quickly before I close, verse 8 talks about the beginning of birth pangs. This is not a hopeless term. Just like a pregnant mother knows that. Now, is there pain, discomfort, trial, tribulation, hardship? Well, according to our chapter, absolutely. Just like a pregnant mother who's coming near to full term, perhaps could well attest. There could be discomfort. But yet you know that at the birth, that will be the signal of a new age. Something new is happening. Well, for us, as we read this, that birth is the messianic kingdom of peace. The birth pangs will intensify. 
they'll intensify. They'll get more rapid. They'll get closer together. They will be hard. They'll be severe. But then when it's all said and done, the Lord will return and the messianic kingdom will be birthed. And it will be a time of joy and a time of celebration and righteousness on earth. It will be a time when the Son of Man returns in glory and He assumes His throne on the earth and all the nations will bow before the Son. But these, what we're reading tonight, just the beginning. Just the beginning of the birth pains. Next week, you see verse 14 in your Bible. But when you see the abomination, that's like Jesus's way of saying, remember back in Daniel chapter nine, at the midpoint of the seven year tribulation, the three and a half year mark. Let's talk about what's going to happen at the middle of the tribulation. That'll be what we look at next week together. Take your Bible with me and let's. Let's look at one portion of God's word that does particularly relate to you and me. 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Notice this is right after chapter 4 on the rapture, the catching up of believers. Believers are alive, are caught up together with the saints in the clouds. We meet the Lord in the air. Now in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 1. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. And then Paul says in verse 2, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord, that's, that's a phrase for the seven-year tribulation. Same thing, the day of the Lord, the tribulation, time of Jacob, same thing. The seven-year day of the Lord, that will come like a thief in the night. While they, that is non-believers, are saying, ha, peace and safety. Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, believers, brethren, you are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. Verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, meaning the wrath of the day of the Lord, the seven-year tribulation. God didn't appoint us, the church, for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a rapture verse. We're promised deliverance from that day of wrath. Verse 10, Jesus died for us so that whether we awake or sleep, we will live together with him. So what do we do? Verse 11, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another. Do you see that? that? That's what we're to do. We are to encourage. And end times is meant for us to encourage each other. And to edify each other. And to remind each other. Hey, this world is not really falling apart. Things are happening according to how they must happen. Because God is working it all out anyway, according to his plan. 
So God wants us to be aware and he wants us to be alert. So let's take the truth that we hear tonight about the future and let's be aware, but let's be alert. Let's be alert, looking for the Lord's coming to catch us up, to take us to heaven, to see him in the clouds. Our hope is not in the things of the here and now. Our hope is in Christ. We will see him. We will be with him. Even though the world will get worse and the labor pains will get more intense, the messianic era is soon to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word that you have given. Thank you for the clarity of Mark 13 and Revelation chapter 6 and other portions of the word. God, help us to comfort one another, to build up one another, to edify one another, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.